This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. The late poet and translator W.S. Merwin, who died last year at the age of 91, has left us a remarkable account of visiting the aging and imprisoned Ezra Pound back in 1949, when Merwin himself was just starting out. And this is what he says. I was in Washington, D.C. at Easter during one of my last years as a student. I was visiting a college friend in the city, and while I was there I telephoned St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and to my surprise learned that I would be allowed to call on Ezra Pound, and that he was willing to see me. On a morning of bright sunlight, one of the first warm days of spring, I took the bus across Washington to the hospital. The hospital at that time was a collection of large 19th century brick buildings, They appear to have been built in the years after the Civil War, with fire escapes and portico roofs probably added later. They looked hard-worn and tired, but the stains and cracks running down the brickwork, as I recall the place, may be imaginary touches supplied more recently in remembering it. The building to which my inquiries led resembled a big down-at-heels municipal school, a larger, broader, duller version of the brick neo-Gothic Abraham Lincoln School Number no. 14, between Academy and Division Streets in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where I attended for five years of my childhood. A dingy entrance, and at the top of a flight of stairs an attendant opened a heavy, metal-covered door, and I found myself in a large, ill-lit, sparsely furnished public room, its walls a wan, glaucous green. A facility quite obviously something that was thought of as a necessary evil. Pound was led down an inner flight of steps that looked like the bottom of a circling staircase in a tower, and he welcomed me when the attendant stepped aside, with an open-mouthed smile, his head thrown back. We sat down in an alcove in two veteran easy chairs. The distance between us was beyond calculation small-voiced goodwill calling across a canyon. He began to talk to me as though I knew many things whose very names I had never heard, and I nodded and murmured as appropriately as possible. Pound's book, The Peas and Cantos, had been published fairly recently. I knew something of their story, and something, mostly hearsay, of the government's case against Pound, but I had read next to nothing about his politics, 
and did not know what to make of the things I had heard. I understood that the insanity plea had perhaps saved his life, and the most frequent question I heard about Pound at the time was whether or not he was crazy. I had not read his statements about fascism or his anti-Semitic rantings. I did not want to believe some of the things I had heard about him, and certainly I did not want him to be shot, which at the time was said to be, or at least to have been, quite possible. Looking back, I am surprised to realize how easily I was able to focus my enthusiasm on the poetry alone, and on what I regarded as Pound's intransigent, undeflected devotion to it. I admired him for passages in his poems, some of which still seemed to me new and gem-like. The startling vitality of those lines allowed me to cling to something that I thought exemplary in him. He was an American, middle class and in every sense provincial as I was, who had set out from the beginning to be an artist, a poet, and to do it without money. I felt that I was already in his debt, and at that stage I did not want to hear things about him that I would not be able to come to terms with. He talked about Confucius, kept returning to him, and about Bill, William Carlos Williams, with approval, but as though he were remembering another time. Pound then was in his sixties, but to me he seemed like an ancient, and when he looked back it must have seemed to him that he had lived through several distinct lives. He talked about his book, The Cantos, his cantos, and about that magic trick that he predicted so many times. When the hundredth canto was finished, he said, demonstrating with his hands in the air, the capstone would fit perfectly across the columns of the temple, and everything would be seen to be in place. I was eager to ask him the right things, but for the most part he took care of all that. He was glad to have someone who wanted to listen to him. He went back to talking, about Jean Cocteau now, whose poems he liked, and it was not easy for him to find contemporary poets he wanted to read. He spoke in the key of judgment the greater part of the time. He talked about reading in general. Have you noticed, he asked, that senators never read the newspapers? I admitted that I had never noticed that. That, he explained confidentially, is because a political party goes to the pot when it begins to believe its own lies. I hoped he would veer back to the subject of poetry, and he did, and talked about Eliot, Tom, but again a distance, a remoteness, seemed to hover around his words. I wanted to ask him about Yeats, but he took me by surprise and turned the subject to me, or someone he took to be me, someone, as he seemed quite prepared to believe, who was bent on spending his life trying to write poetry. He had been lucky, he said, to have known a generation of writers who had never thought of writing for money. He told me he imagined I was serious, and that if I was, I should learn languages, quote, so as not to be at the mercy of translators, end quote. And then I should translate myself. If you're going to be a poet, he said, you have to work at it every day. You should you should write about 75 lines a day, but at your age you don't have anything to write about. You may think you do, but you don't. So get to work translating. 
The Provençal is the real source. The poets are closest to music. They hear it. They write to it. Try to learn Provençal, at least some of it, if you can. Meanwhile, the others. Spanish is all right. The Romanciero is what you want there. Get as close to the original as you can. It will make you use your English and find out what you can do with it. When the visiting hour was nearly over, his wife, Dorothy Shakespeare, arrived. A tall, quiet, gentle Englishwoman, whom I liked immediately, and Pound turned me over to her, speaking of me as though we had known each other for some time, and I were a literary person of established consequence. Then the attendant came and led Pound away, and up the inner staircase, where the light appeared to be better, and Dorothy and I were led out through the doorway to the world at large. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.